0: They're so good, they make us want to sing like I can't believe it Burger King made a grill dog Made with 100% beef. Flame anytime you want This July 4th weekend, put down the tongs, step away from the grill, and get to Burger King to try a grilled dog for just a dollar. Ask for the Dollar Grill Dog deal and get a classic grill dog for a dollar. Only at Burger King. At participating restaurants on July 2nd and 3rd, limit five per transaction while supplies last. Welcome to Real GM Radio. This is your host, Daniel LaRue, and thank you so much for joining us. This week we have two great guests. First up is Ethan Sherwood-Strauss of ESPN, and we also have tax accountant and business manager Michael Pock, who wrote a piece for Real GM on the tax implications of decisions like Dwight Howard. But first off, we have Ethan Sherwood-Strauss. He's on ESPN. We go, as we usually do in a wide variety of topics, from the Warriors and the mess of the Atlantic Division to a potential Miami Indy final, or conference finals, and a lot of other topics in between, including some draft talk and a bunch of other discussions. So, hope you enjoy it. It was a lot of fun to record. Thank you so much to Ethan for coming on again.
1: Oh, I love being on, Danny.
0: We're, so, we're, we're recording this on Wednesday, right before... Your employer has the ESPN game of the Warriors hosting the Mavericks. Both of us will be in attendance. And I just was wondering, first of all, before we get into that, your general take on the Warriors so far this season.
1: Oh, man, that's so hard because it's been such a bumpy road. It's been so volatile with the injuries. I guess I would say that they've slightly underwhelmed, slightly. But when healthy, they've overwhelmed. I really liked what they looked like when healthy. And so I don't believe in – making excuses i'm a no excuse columnist uh to use mark jackson's words so i would place the blame on an organization when they have a rash of injuries because you have to control that that's within your purview you pay trainers to try to reduce the risk of injuries and treat them properly but the end result is that they're winning fewer games than i would have anticipated while at the same time based on the injuries they're winning about as many games as i would have anticipated what's your take I think
0: I've been more impressed with what their true ceiling is in terms of the talent that they have. If everything was working well, and I'll say if their rotations were in line, I'm sure we'll get into that, this is a better team than I thought they would be, and I thought they were going to be very good. The problem, as you've mentioned, is that we don't know how often we're going to see that together, and then the second problem is we're not seeing a lot of the potentially best groupings of players together at all, even when they are
1: healthy. I would agree. I don't want to get too emotionally involved in the season, but I almost want them to win at this point just because Curry is playing so well, but now people in the national audience are kind of turning on him because there was all this hype about the season and the Warriors aren't producing relative to expectations. Meanwhile, he's playing out of his mind But the roster, the injured roster right now, is underwhelming, and it's also kind of sabotaging him. He's making a lot of great passes and creating a lot of open looks, and he's surrounded by a bunch of dudes who can't dribble and don't shoot all that well aside from Thompson.
0: I've wanted, I don't I don't think we have that data from Sports View yet, but a stat that I've wanted for a long time is the assists, a measure of assists if the shot had gone in, but if the person shooting was wide open and they just missed it. I always called it a LeBron because based on when he was in Cleveland, obviously now those guys make the shots, and Curry has had an absolute ton of those possibilities this season.
1: Definitely. And some sometimes your assist can be created by someone's ability to move after you pass the ball to them, just by taking that extra dribble and getting to the rim. They have such a dearth of guys who can do that. So if Curry finds them with the pass. If they throw up a pump fake or if they're not completely wide open, then nothing else can really happen there. It just it's just kind of stopped, you know, maybe throw it out to somebody else. So uh, I, I've I been so impressed with Curry this season. He's made the Steve Nash leap uh, in the early going where they're throwing two guys on him on pick and roll above the arc, and he's got that herky-jerk way of slowly drawing the defense towards the hoop, doing the Nash thing where he sweeps along the baseline, and then kicking out the shooters. That is a new Thing he's doing, and it raises the ceiling on his game a great deal. So who knows? Maybe the Warriors will start winning. Maybe Curry, who's been in a little bit of a shooting slump, will start shooting better, and folks will take notice. But for now, it's under the radar.
0: It's an interesting development because, to me, one of the always the benefits that was in the background of Curry, and I'll compare this to a point to Kevin Love, though it's more offensive, actually, with both of them, is that when you have a guy who has a high basketball IQ... I feel like they can adjust to what defenses do to them more quickly and more effectively. And that, I think, is what Curry's—what's been so great about this year is that he— and he talked with both of us about this after—I can't remember which game it was. And it's that defenses are treating him differently, and he's, he's done such a beautiful job of maximizing what that means in terms of the team goal as opposed to necessarily his individual
1: stats. Yes. It would be nice if his teammates could find him in kind. That That's not really happening right now. Uh, he's surrounded by a bunch of guys who can't get the best shooter in basketball the ball. So that's an unfortunate situation for Golden State. The topic du jour, as far as I'm concerned, is uh, the David Lee circumstance. Uh, I, I wrote an article today about how fans have turned on him. You know, we can't really get accurate measure of fan opinion, but... You you see it, too. You you're on real GM. You see how people react. The Warriors fans, I believe a majority of them want David Lee gone, you know, months after the All-Star selection, which is really kind of incredible. That doesn't happen a whole lot. And while I certainly understand why they feel that way and certainly think that the Warriors should be on the phones and working the phones, pursuing a deal, it's debatable as to what they should do right now. Draymond Green provides so much better defense than David Lee, but you do wonder if he plays 35 minutes. You're not. You might get a worse Draymond Green. And same goes for Harrison Barnes stretch four. Not only that, but that would really kill Lee's trade value if you banish him to the bench, and might just make him worse when he does play. So there are some you know, delicate decisions to be made here. What do you think should happen?
0: If they can get value for him, I think that they should look to move him. I've been saying that basically since they signed him. I was I've never been a, a big supporter of his. The really big danger with this team, and I don't think as much as I as much as I think Bob Myers has done a good job building this team, I don't think the rationale of signing Maurice Spates to his bigger deal, basically yeah. spending the most money they've oh. spent on any on any summer acquisition whether it's an Aguadala to I don't think they did that with the vision of saying, "Hey, if we move David Lee, we would need a traditional four because that is true that while you and I both support a four out mentality, I think that it's important to have a traditional four so that when you need it, you can do it
1: well i I'd like it better if spades could guard his position. That's the thing that they that they lacked because you want to go four out unless the other team is such a dominating power forward that you need to guard him with some size and I'm not sure Spates can do that. Spates has been miserable on defense. My God, he's been a disaster. He, it's hard to imagine him playing worse than he's played uh, in the early going. And combining it with the bad body language, maybe that doesn't matter at all, but it's just kind of a bummer, and just lack of effort on a lot of plays. It's, it's frustrating, and even though they didn't spend a great deal of money, it's still a disaster even with that factored in so far.
0: Exactly. I think that the the real challenge, and this is true, I think we've seen this from the Rudy Gay trade, is that any GM now, if you have a guy that isn't set in stone on your team, and I think even in a lot of ways, if they are, but not you know LeBron, obviously, is that you have to take advantage of people overvaluing your guys. That if there's yeah. one team, if there's one team that still sees somebody that you think is crap as a viable player, you have to go for it because you in the new CBA you don't get many second chances. I mean,
1: look at the moves the Pelicans have made. There, there are still owners uh, and GMs who just go based off name, brand, and who are averse to actually thinking about it a little bit deeper. It's an increasingly rare breed, don't get me wrong. There's a new class of smarter owners, and it's harder to uh, to pawn those guys off on somebody. But you still have your collection of inheritors, guys who are just the son of somebody rich, and they're not that bright, and you can find that market perhaps if you really work for it, I'm guessing.
0: I was talking I was chatting on Twitter with Amin Ellison, your colleague a couple of days ago and we were having a discussion on what teams right now would have the perception of having a really strong owner and a really strong general manager and that's it's fascinating that there are so few teams that have both pieces firmly in place right now.
1: What are those teams?
0: I, I would say that right now Philadelphia looks that way, Houston definitely looks that way obviously the Spurs. Beyond them, I'd have to think that there are probably a couple. Of the Warriors, depending on how things go, we still haven't seen Joe up and the rest of the ownership group pay the luxury tax, and that's going to be a really interesting test. Because he said at first he said no. I think it was Matt. I think it was Steinmetz said asked him and he said no, and then he's like, "Well, if the team's good enough." And then they've shown a willingness to, and to me, that is one part of ownership is the. For ownership psych, it's the ability to get out of the way if you're not helping and the willingness to pay the tax if your team is good enough. For GMs, GM qualities, it's kind of self-evident in that sense. I mean, you, you're not always going to agree, but you'll agree that some people are good and some are bad.
1: I'll agree that Myers gives all indication of being a smart and competent individual. And I've liked the moves, and it, it, it matters when somebody sounds smart when they're talking. <laughs> that, that, that's certainly uh, – gives you more confidence in what they're doing it's hard to judge a lot of these guys from afar because we don't know what their jobs consist of i I feel that way often with jackson where people will yell about certain moves jackson is making such as the whole david lee situation the people like myself who want more of the four out strategy and more of Draymond green minutes more barnes minutes who want that then yell about mark jackson and i don't I don't really know. I don't know if that's the decision that Jackson's making. Lacob is known to be friendly with Leaf. For all we know, it's the decision that Lacob is making. I don't know either way. Uh, we, we just often judge based on outcomes and we ascribe responsibility. But when the division of labor isn't clear to us, we don't really know. And that's also true with the Pelicans. I think that Dell Demps,
0: if it were his choice, if it were his – if he had the money to do it, he probably would have built the Pelicans differently. But if ownership is saying you have to do this and they're the ones who sign your checks and tell you that you might not have a job anymore, you have to do it. And that that's a really hard thing. Uh, so I was thinking about the major market. So if you – I would say that's L.A. and New York, though you could throw in other ones if you really want to. And – I think it's interesting we're talking about how, you know, the coach – or sorry, not the coach, the owner-GM combination. And in my opinion, given the Lakers' shakiness, no major market team right now has the quality combination of both.
1: That's that's so interesting. It should change soon. Uh, I know that the son-in-law of Donald Sterling, he, he's got a pretty good rep. So should Sterling uh, – let's euphemistically call it step down. That situation could be rectified. Boston, if you want to consider them a major market, it seems like they might have a solid group over there. I don't know enough about it. But for the most part, it's very unfortunate for the NBA that these large markets are rife with incompetence. I mean, my God, the New York situation both ways is is awful. It's just so awful for them. And then to lose Los Angeles uh, and the biggest Los Angeles brand in the Lakers to incompetence, I don't know what else you want to call it. Giving Kobe Bryant $48 million and you don't need to? I mean, what even is that?
0: I wanted to talk with you about this. So I think it was Howard Bryant said on, I think it was on Oberman's show, and he said that the whole thing of, that, that I've heard from the media of, oh, you can't blame Kobe for taking the money because they offered it. I feel like completely not true because players take less money all the time to make their team. Uh, here's,
1: dis- here's where I disagree. I, mean, I, think it's not, I, I, I think it's a good argument because players take less money, but are those players who take less money – offered less money, that's a big difference. That is a big difference. It's a huge difference to go, you know what? Yeah, I'll accept that $10 million a year because of loyalty and because of what we're building because you offered it to me versus, wait, you're offering me 25 Nah, I'd rather take 10 That's a big distinction. And from all appearances, it seems as though the Lakers just offered him that massive contract, and I can't blame Kobe for taking the money because it's money.
0: It's hard to know with guys like Duncan. I think you Duncan or Parker would be the best chances because it seems like the Spurs wouldn't be wouldn't have the gall to offer them ten and twelve million respectively without any sort of background. That that seems it, it's possible. I don't know any. I don't know with any certainty, but that seems unlikely to me. Uh,
1: with the Spurs, I think they also take that money because they're using a legal PED called rest, and maybe they know elsewhere. I wouldn't be as good. I wouldn't be as good if they were running me out there. 37 minutes, but here I'm taken care of, and it's fair. I'm accepting a fair price for the amount of minutes that I'm playing.
0: So something that you and I have talked about but not on the podcast is that maybe the biggest market inefficiency going right now in the league is prevention or handling of injuries, and that fits in really well with what you just said about the Spurs. Do you feel like there there are things that certain teams know in the league that they're not sharing with anybody? Oh, of
1: course. Uh, I've asked the Spurs before – Tim Duncan and Tony Parker, they had a different running form than they have right now. Maybe not so coincidentally, they both had plantar fasciitis. They don't have that anymore. In theory, once you get that, you have that. But they don't have it anymore. So I believe the Spurs did something, but I emailed them about it, and they don't want to talk about it. They do not want to talk about this stuff. They had some sort of... Biometric monitoring device on on the players in summer league, and they've had it before. They don't want to talk exactly about what that does. So yes, they I believe that teams do try to maintain their competitive advantage. One of those teams uh, isn't the Phoenix Suns. They're quite they're quite open about how hey we use this device. It measures uh, everybody's bodies, and if anything is off by a millimeter or what have you, whenever there's a measurement that's off, it can indicate some instability that needs to be fixed. I believe that they're open about that, but a lot of teams just don't go through the effort that the Suns go through to prevent injuries.
0: And what's remarkable about it in a, in a league that has a salary cap but that has owners that are willing to spend kind of differently than that is that there are a few places where that money can really make a difference, and I think we saw some of that with the Mavericks in terms of their facilities and things like that, and training staff – makes so much sense as a way to spend that money because if it makes your players better, and it also can make it more desirable for older players like Jermaine O'Neal on the Suns.
1: Certainly, but if you invest all that into your training staff and you can't blame luck and misfortune when things go badly, maybe there's a psychological element to why teams don't invest. They don't want to believe they're in control of this.
0: But before moving on to a completely other thing, I wanted to say one other part with the Kobe thing is I'm fine with him taking the money in terms of as long as he and the Lakers own it that you know that they did that. And there there's no shame in taking a, a ludicrously high offer. I, I mean I'm a Giant I'm a San Francisco Giants fan and Barzito got a ludicrous contract. I'm never gonna criticize him for taking it. The only side effect to that to me is that you can't with a straight face say that you're all about championships. Championships can be important to you. It's just that that whole line of saying that it's all about number six, then you can just politely let it go.
1: It's always been a lie, though. I mean, who's all about anything? (laughs) You need to (laughs) – you know, you choose winning a championship over water, over food, over seeing your family ever again. Nobody's all about anything. It's all relative to other considerations. I I felt like what Kobe has done so well over the course of his career – I think he's in on it. I think Kobe is smart enough to not be about what he's purportedly about. He just feeds the myth. He feeds the legend of cutthroat competitiveness. An assassin, he'll stomp on you. He'll do anything, 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 anything for the win. It's the only thing he's about. He's obviously a deeper person than that if you talk to him for more than a minute. He's not Michael Jordan. He's a smarter individual than Michael Jordan, but he has an interest in projecting a narrower, ver- uh, narrower version of himself to the public because it makes him wealthy and it makes him ever more famous.
0: That's a really interesting idea, and having spoken with him as well, he's an extremely intelligent person, just as not, not to comparing him to athletes and all that silly I, stuff that people do, like, oh, he's smart for an athlete, he's a smart guy. I
1: just think about moments where a couple years ago, he lost to the Heat and he missed a few shots in Miami, and then after the game, he's out there, getting up practice shots in front of the media and that's contrived. I'm sorry. This is BS at some level. This is performance art. You know, that's not even going to help you for the next day. Uh, this is, it just rang false in it rang hollow, but it was great for the narrative. And it was great because that's what the media talked about, even though the Lakers lost. And it was about how much Kobe is this competitor who will never say die. So, I believe he's in control of his own myth making. Maybe there's some blurry lines there where uh, part of him believes it uh, completely. But right now, it's such a weird circumstance in Lakerland because he's almost like a cult leader. Uh, we've all we've all, we've always known that the Kobe fans were particularly intense. Uh, we've talked about it, but now it seems almost even more absurd as the Laker. Franchise kind of descends and is on the wane. That he's still propped up as this godlike figure, where all the advertisements for him coming back are "show us again." And there's this incredible amount of height for Kobe, who looks heavy and he looks bulky and he was moving like Andre Miller. And it's almost like he can no longer even approach that godlike status. On the court, that people attach to him, but there's still that cult-like following behind it, and it's a fascinating dynamic.
0: In terms of Lakers fans, I think that they're kind of their own thing, but what's been most surprising to me, and it's a general critique of the NBA, is that they seem much more willing to embrace and promote existing stars than to try to build new ones. There are so many great young players in this league, if you want to go to Damian Lillard in Portland, Anthony Davis in New Orleans, that get so little national exposure. So that there's this gulf between people like us who watch this stuff and who live on League Pass and the casual fans who could be just as engrossed in them. As in other guys, but they're not getting them when they're young, especially. Guys like Durant, it took years for them to get on national TV. Yeah,
1: it's it's too bad. I think the NBA, I am a proponent of big markets. I think the NBA should have more big markets, not fewer, and that they're squandering money by having as many small markets as they have at the same time. I believe that the national broadcast schedule skews way too far towards large markets. It's not a compelling product when you have Knicks versus Nets on television and that – you should have some of these smaller market teams that have compelling stars, not just because it's better basketball, but because it builds the brands of these guys. You know, It builds the brand of an Anthony Davis. It builds the brand of a Damian Lillard. So you can profit later uh, as they enter their prime because people know about them
0: and they're more invested in them. And you get you get that sense. I think that there's this misunderstanding in the NBA that there are people, they kind of see it as people are fans of particular players or particular teams, but there's this wide group of sports fans. If you look at, obviously the NFL is its own thing, but there, there are people who watch the NFL because they want to watch sports. And so for those people, you want to give them the most interesting product. And so for some people, that's, Guys that they're familiar with, but by building reputations, you're doing that while also showing them basketball that's more likely to bring them back.
1: That's a great point by you, and it's why I often find myself clashing with other NBA addicts because I sometimes think that they're so invested in this world of NBA fandom and hardcore uh, NBA writer, blogger, universe where it's also interesting that they don't even fathom how boring it is to the casual fan. Maybe they don't care, but it's not something that they want to wrap their, their heads around. Uh, and you, I, I looked at an article uh, today that came out about the Pacers heat in that game last night. And the article, I swear to God, its, its teaser was – The Heat have a Roy Hibbert problem, and they have until July to fix it, or, you know, can they fix it before July? And, I mean, maybe it should have been June, or maybe it should have been May. Be that as it may, I mean, it just really, that's not, think about that. Think how boring that is to the casual fan, where, man, the Heat have a real big issue here, and they have, like, I don't know, well, maybe sort of half a year to get, you know, to get it together. I mean, that's 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 crazy Um, or all these games to get it together. And so we do have this problem where the NBA season is just fundamentally boring for that person you described who just wants to watch sports and just wants to be excited.
0: And the fact that most of the year there isn't even one broadcast national game on on the major, the the low-number networks is remarkable to me because even if you just had, you know, like the NBA on NBC and you had the equivalent of Michael Jordan on once a week, and that would just make people, oh, that's right, there are games on all the time and they're on different places, and then you pick, you know, and then let's say one of those games a month you do – just kind of young stars, so whether it be John Wall, because there are a lot of those guys in the league right now that are incredibly fun to watch. It's not, oh, this guy's going to be really good. Like you and I talk about Andre Drummond a lot, yeah, and he is remarkable to watch. And I, I tweeted this earlier in the week that that at one of my favorite things with League Pass is every time that it's a it's the non-Piston speed, the broadcasters of the other team just sit there and they every once in a while they stop start talking about how amazing it is to watch him move
1: it's ridiculous he's godzilla and what's sad about it is that they've i i've i've thought about doing a rankings of most sabotaged stars or most sabotaged young stars i think him and davis and kyrie irving are certainly up there uh in his case look at that guy's talents what does he need around him shooting what do they have none of shooting They should, they should have, I'm a big promoter of the four out. We talk about all the time, but especially on that team, my God, that's, that's what that's made for. They are made to surround Andre Drummond with shooting so they can run pick and roll and have nobody in that lane and uh, throw alley-oops. And yet they're surrounded by a bunch of guys who don't need to be guarded. So everybody will pack the paint and foul him whenever he goes up in the air. It's just depressing. At the same time, you know, at the same time as it's fun to see these stars that we speak of, on League Pass, it's almost equivalently depressing to see them in these incompetent, inept situations that are squandering their talent and their potential. The other guy that I would put in that group, and I think he and Drummond,
0: you mentioned the shooters, the other flaw they have is weak point guard play, and that's DeMarcus Cousins. We've seen him do better this year. He also coincidentally has a point guard is he taking a big I mean, step.
1: That's, is he doing better, or is he tricking some of the uh, advanced stats by just having a ton of usage and a ton of shots.
2: I
0: think he's doing, when I've watched him, he seems more in control offensively and he seems a little bit more disciplined defensively. I'm waiting for that, but it's, it's not as much as the hype is, but I do think when I watch him, I say, this is, the- he's, he's taken a small step, not a huge step, but a step nonetheless. I
1: I, I could get with that. I could get with that, that there's been some moderate improvement. I just think he's one of those guys who, his advanced metrics are so much better than he actually is, uh, because you can kind of trick you can kind of trick certain stats by by shooting a lot and by not passing to your teammates.
0: And that's yeah, I, I mean we can tell per has per has that, but I think that and other stats do of course as well. Do you think that? The Anthony Davis, Ryan Anderson combo, is the long-term fit There is there? Should they have a third guy? I've been trying to figure that out myself. I think they should, have a third,
1: they should have a third big. That's the fit. But at the same time, they should have a third big for when the matchup calls for it. It's easier said than done to get that guy. Unfortunately, they saw fit to let, let Robin Lopez run away and throw a bunch of money at Tyreek Evans. It does not appear to be a competently run organization.
0: Well, they also had Noel sit Noel fall to them in the draft. I mean, that, that to me, that was the three because then that allows you to play Noel less minutes a game but have a high impact and do some interesting big man, small man stuff, or kind of big man, big man stuff with the two of them, with him and David. Yeah,
1: I, I don't know if Noel will ever even be good, but that was preferable to me to what they ended up doing, and it, it appeared as though the short-termers were, were the unwise people. We'll see how it plays out. But another example of that were uh, the short-term thinking of the Brooklyn Nets. And, hey, Danny Ainge, one of the best trades ever in uh, getting KG, and apparently maybe one of the best trades ever in trading KG. It's it's incredible.
0: It It is. And what, what was interesting about that to me was that I understood the rationale from the Nets side in the sense that, you're going to be good over the short term. You're not getting guys that are committed to long-term contracts. But they gave up so many future assets that it's going to be hard for them to maintain their quality, even with the willingness to spend as much as, as Prokhorov appears willing to oh, spend. Oh, they're so lucky
1: that Brook Lopez is as good as he is. He is – man, it's, it, it's, it's the impossible task to be underrated. To be an underrated star in New York City is very difficult to pull off, but he has pulled it off people don't understand how good he is because he's just surrounded by an awful situation and he's been hurt for some of the season.
0: And the other hard question with that is, you know, Billy King is a, is a GM that has done a lot of really short sighted moves with the idea of making the Jared Wallace trade to me is kind of the all timer of near in the near term of that of give, basically giving up Damian Lillard to get a guy who was going to be a free agent and then they overpaid him anyway.
1: Oh yeah. It,
0: and, I if I'm if I'm any other GM right now, I'm calling them with every single potential piece that you could argue would make the Nets better and sacrifice. So if that means if I'm the Warriors, I'm calling them offering up David Lee. That means if I'm the Knicks, to me, I'm calling them up and offering Melo. Well, I, I wrote, is the
1: who do you trade whom do you trade David Lee for game? I'm not sure the Nets have people on the roster that you would you necessarily want for David Lee. You know. Maybe a healthy Karolenko, but he's probably not leaving because he's got that special arrangement with Prokhorov. So like, who's the target? I think that the David Lee target should be Milwaukee. That, that should be the David Lee target. They have some pieces that would be nice to get in return, and they might not be well-run.
0: The question in terms of David Lee, and I've been talking about this with people on an offline for a long time now, is would you like if you were running the Warriors, would you be willing to basically just get back the salary cap, the money that you would do? Basically would you trade him for an expiring and nothing else right now?
1: Yes. I would. I would because I fear that the value his perceived value is only going to go down as the next year or so progresses.
0: So then, theoretically, uh, David Lee for Paul Pierce conceptual trade. If I don't, I don't, I, I think a little I love that trade
1: because it's difficult to embrace because he might be done, he might be washed up, but at the same time, he he helps fill a need for the Warriors and he can shoot the three. And that's I, I, I'd have to really look into that one, but that is that's a spicy deal. I I, I like it.
0: And that's the real—and I think we learned this from the Rudy Gay trade—is that you need to find the people who value, because almost everybody in the league has somebody who really likes them. And there was actually an interesting—I'll just make this an aside—baseball parallel that the the, G, the guy who drafted Corey Hart for the Brewers is now the GM of the Mariners, and he just signed him. And so you get into those situations where one guy or girl, whatever really likes a player and is then willing to do that and identifying that person and just trying to maximize it is going to be the secret to a lot of these moves that may or may not happen.
1: And I don't know who out there likes David Liddy. I mean, I know that the Knicks fan base loves him uh, way more than the Warriors fan base does that extend to management? Well, they let him go the first time. So I'm not sure. Also, more importantly, the Knicks don't have anything you want <laughs> as I think about that roster. Um, and you can't, you can't you can't trade with Toronto. You don't want to ever get in a deal with Masai. That's that's there. Who are the which GMs would you want to avoid? Which GMs scare you? Where a deal happens and you go, oh God, I just don't like it based on the guy we're dealing with.
0: Buford to me is number one with that because I don't think that anybody knows when their players are done better than the Spurs do. So I, I just would be terrified of trading anybody that was on their team. I would be terrified of trading for anybody as good as I think they are, with the exception of Kawhi. But I think even Kawhi, if he got traded, would be overvalued just because he they they for them to be willing to give him up. It's it, to me that would be red flags.
1: Yeah, yeah, I I, I agree. Buford, Maury, Masai, maybe Ange, maybe Ange is creeping in there. Late surge by Ainge. And, well,
0: Ainge, Ainge has done some weird stuff, I mean, yeah. he, with with drafts and with things like that. He, He's a great identifier of kind of the larger trends, but then he has some weird decisions of guys. I think that the Jeff Green extension is kind of the – obviously, it's not a trade, but it's an example yeah. of no, I, I hated kind that of a move. blind spot. It,
1: it's, it's worked out okay, but I really hated that move at the time. So – Maybe he's up there. And also, I'd have to say, look, we have to see what happens when Rondo comes back, but he probably should have traded Rondo at peak value um, as opposed to sticking with him. And we'll see, though. Egg could be on my face. Maybe Brad Stevens will have this glorious impact on Rondo. I know a lot of Boston fans are selling themselves on that idea. Uh, That's a storyline I want to watch when, when it comes to B. You and I both think that Rondo is comically overrated, though.
0: Rondo's an is a is a fascinating piece because he's he's overrated for strange reasons. He's a good passer, but his assist numbers are inflated for a couple of different reasons. But their offense was just not good and it's not like their offensive talent was poor. You know, you can get into teams that are bad offensively, let's say situations like the Bobcats were a couple of years ago, because they don't have talent. But they had they had decent talent and their offense is always sagged with Rondo. Yeah.
1: It definitely happened. And A game changer for him, a literal game changer, could be if he adds a credible three-point threat. So I don't want to totally dismiss him, but at the same time, he's probably under six feet tall in socks, and he's in his late 20s, and the track record isn't great in that kind of player performing well after that point. So when I hear stuff like, hey, do the Celtics want to trade him for Isaiah Thomas? I know Simmons is a big fan of that it sounds sacrilegious, it sounds blasphemous, but I go, hell no, I'd rather have Isaiah Thomas.
0: Yeah, I I can definitely see that logic. Moving from, strangely enough, considering how terrible they've been from one Atlantic division team to another, if you were in complete control of the Knicks, what, what would be your direction that you would take them for, let's say, the next two, three years?
1: Man, oh, wow. I, I don't even know how to clean or how to clear the decks. I You almost have to... The big question, the big question is do you sign Carmelo Anthony for max money? Now, he appeared to be quite a valuable player once he was a power forward. Once he was turned into a power forward, he could really help a team. We've seen that before. As a small forward, I don't want him getting that money. So I have to take a good, hard, long look at whether or not he wants to be there and whether or not you'd want him there. And I'm guessing I would probably – I'd probably go with Mello make him the power forward, keep Tyson Chandler, try to kind of wait out those other contracts. Man, when does Amari's contract uh, expire? When does that happen?
0: After next season. So basically everybody but Melo of their of their expensive pieces expires at the absolute latest in the summer of 2015. So that's when, theoretically, when Love could be a free
1: agent and a series of others. I think you got that. Yeah, I think you got to sign Mello and then wait it out. And... Uh, yeah, in theory, love is available, but all these teams, they, they wait for that other guy, that, ex- that that guy who's not on their team that they'll be able to sign, and the odds aren't against you. The field will win that most of the time. So as much as I would far prefer to have love over, over Carmelo Anthony, uh, they're sort of locked into what they have, and they have to wait out this, this bad contract, period, and then build on top of it and put the pieces back together Um, in a more reasonable spending way. So that's how I'd go about it.
0: I I can see that logic. I disagree in the sense that I think New York is one of those teams that can have the expectation that they can do better. I think that they can— You'd blow it up completely. Absolutely. I I, I wrote a piece last week for Real GM that I I would not only I would go farther and I would trade McCarmello right now if there's a team that overvalues him, uh, because, you know, to me, I'm
1: sympathetic to that one. I, I would go that way. I don't know what you're getting back, but that might be the smartest. That would be such a a news story. That'd be a lot of fun.
0: Well, and, and the other thing that is very underappreciated about 2015 in particular is that with Kobe's extension, it is very unlikely that any other team will have the space for two elite talents. So – If you're because of the major markets, because Miami, whatever happens with their guys, they're going to pretty much be spoken for. Mm -hmm. The Clippers are handled. They're doing their thing. The Lakers don't have that money anymore with Kobe signing his deal. And they're not going to be able to trade him. So it's not like you can bring it in that way. He has a no trade and all that. So and the Nets are still capped out for another year. So you're sitting there in kind of a sweet spot if you're the Knicks, saying if we clear the decks, all we need to do is have have two of these guys have a good enough relationship where they can do that, and then you have the flexibility because you're New York that if for whatever reason you strike out then, then you wait one more year, and that's the Durant class. And then at that point, if you don't do it, then you use your cap space to, to kind of more like a small market team where you use it to pick up guys like Thomas Robinson when they're cheap, and then you go after in a more conventional way. But I think you, if you're the Knicks... You have to go for that championship ceiling and I don't see Mellow as the best or second best player on a title team.
1: Yeah, I don't either. I don't see him as that, but I could see combining Chandler and Mello with enough health if age doesn't rob them of so much with some other talent and potentially doing it. That's not a it's not a very confident statement, but I could I could see it. Here's the question that I'm wondering right now. Which team gets Isaiah Thomas next season? It looks like it's going to be Sacramento, but he's a free agent. What's going to happen there? Who could use him?
0: As a restricted free agent, that's the big, big thing about him. Is cause but how decided- high
1: do they go? Here's what's crazy. Oh. Is somebody, does somebody max out Isaiah Thomas?
0: No, I don't think anybody maxed him out. I think he's somebody who I, I, have, I have this feeling. I have this feeling with him that what's going to happen because he's small. And that's what, that's I, I what we're to... dealing
1: with. His whole career is defined by people going. He's short, so therefore, let's all be in a conspiracy to undervalue him. But if his efficiency holds true, why does his height matter if the production is what it is?
0: It doesn't matter, but you need enough GMs to have interest in somebody to drive their value up, and you need somebody to be willing to make that offer. I think the new restricted free agency policy definitely makes it easier for a guy like him to get a big offer. But I think my feel on that situation for a while has been that He's going to want to leave, especially now with the Rudy Gay thing. I think he's going to he's gonna be minimized more in that team. He's going to be frustrated by it. But the market isn't going to bear out exactly what he wants to. So he'll get a good offer but not a great offer, and then the Kings will match it and he'll be mad.
1: My favorite stat right now this season is that Rudy Gay makes 20 times what Isaiah Thomas makes on that team. <laughs> that's, that's terrible. That is a screwed-up economic system that the NBA has going there. That's a, That's incredible.
0: Well, and, if, and with the Kings, you have, their economic situation is going to be very interesting now because of the Rudy Gay thing, that they don't have money this summer, but and that's with assuming that they retain Isaiah, which is fine, but if they're going to be spending, you know, if Isaiah's getting number two player money, then they're not going to have the flexibility to add players other than through the draft for a while, because those two guys are going to gobble up a lot of it even after Rudy Gay is gone, how did, assuming he
1: leaves. How did you feel about the Cousins, Max? I, I, I didn't love it.
0: I, I was more uh, I was more objecting to when they did it than the amount. I think that I, I've had this – I wrote about this when I was living in D.C. and covering John Wall, that I think that any time you have the possibility of getting a 10, like a guy who can be that true franchise changer, you have to do everything you can to until the point that they're not going to be that. But you don't have to make that commitment until you have to make that commitment. And so by doing it early – They transferred all of the risk and the incentive of playing well and playing under control from him to them, and that made no sense.
1: Yeah, and then for them to go, well, we didn't want him to get emotional. We didn't want him to sulk, and I was thinking, is that the kind of player that you want to commit that kind of money to, a player you're worried you'll offend to the point of hurting your team by not giving him the contract? My issue with Cousins is that size gets paid, and that makes sense because – size often comes with a set of skills that is is rare the ability to protect the rim um, for instance is a huge it's a huge deal and also they're more efficient scorers in general the big guys but if the if the big guy doesn't provide that then what are you getting from the size you're not exactly getting size of the things that come with size and cousin's Give some of what comes to sides with the rebounding, but not with the defense. I don't see him ever being that defender, and I'm not sure that's ever worth uh, that kind of commitment so early. He could prove me wrong. He's a giant human being. He's got some talent. He's got some skill. I could easily see myself being wrong, but I just wouldn't pay a big guy that much money if he can't guard. I don't think you should. You almost never should do that unless the big guy can shoot three-pointers
0: or unless they have an unstoppable lack to the basket game. I think that the I've had trouble defining why I've been in not in love with that's too strong, but why I've really liked Marcus Cousins as a as a prospect for a long time and I think it's because other than Marcus Hall who is an, an amazingly underappreciated and remarkable player, there are not any players who play the center position right now who kind of are Really good in one thing, and then kind of good enough overall to do it. I think he could be a remarkable offensive player as both an interior player and as a passer. I think his passing is underrated. It's also underutilized because it's the Kings. Yeah, well, and and so that's a big factor.
1: Well, this brings me to the uh, a related topic, which is that Julius Randle, I see him ranked number two in the draft boards, and I'm thinking, is he doing the things that come with size that are so valuable? I, I don't exactly understand how you can compare a player to Zach Randolph, and that's the most common comp, and you're saying that you want to draft you want to draft that guy maybe number one in the most hyped draft class in years.
0: I was, especially originally, I was really high on Randall. I described him in private as the best pure power forward, so excluding guys like Tim Duncan who can play center. I described him as the best pure power forward prospect since Chris Weber, and I still feel that's largely true, but the problem with that is, is I think you and I are in agreement that the most overvalued position in the NBA is a power forward that can't guard centers. Yeah. And so for me, where you draw that line is elite, non-elite. I think Kevin Love is a power forward who can't really guard centers, but he's an elite player because he's amazing. The
1: three points so, the spacing. I mean, that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly. Huge.
0: And so I've fallen out of Love More with the idea of Julius Randle than him himself, because I think if he can reach that elite level, then he's obviously worth it. But if he falls anything short of that, then you start to think about, like, Paul Millsap is a wonderful player. Paul Millsap got a ridiculous contract. I think it was 219, you know, just a really short, that kind of thing. Because there are so many guys who can do that, and while they might be a little bit worse, they're not so much worse that the team is making a huge downgrade. So with Julius Randle, if he doesn't hit perfectly, and I think there's a reasonable chance he does. I, if I had to ballpark it, I'd say it's 30 to 40 percent, which is very high. You know, that, that's really high for an elite player. And But if he doesn't, he's just so much less valuable than even a guy like whether, uh, Embiid or Dante Exum or players like that who so, play more so premium So
1: You go Embiid, Embiid and Exum over Randle.
0: Right now, yeah, and what would change that is either my, my concept of those other two guys becoming elite going down, so it's less likely that they're going to become scars, or I think it's more likely that Julius Randle becomes a star, which I, I think those are all pretty stable, though I'm liking Embiid more, and the second I start seeing and win workouts and all that kind of stuff, more than what I've already seen, I could fall into or out of love more with him as a prospect.
1: I, I watched the Kansas game last night, and it's just so sad that these guys have to uh... – Spend a year of their development in this slop. I I don't want to be the sneering NBA fan who watches college basketball and uh, looks down on it, but I do. It, it was just an ugly, ugly game that Florida Kansas game where the ball was just deflected all over the place. Nobody could run any offense, and I'm thinking to myself, is this really good for Wiggins' development? Uh, also related, Wiggins, it's it's incredible. He had a he had a finger roll where. He was outside the three-point line, no travel, and just took two steps to get to the get right to the basket. He could have even maybe dunked it. I am becoming increasingly sold on him, in part because defensively he does some things out there that are just extraterrestrial. So, you know, I know a, a lot of people are disappointed by, by what Wiggins has provided, but, man, I, I go back and forth on Wiggins-Parker. I think I go Wiggins right now. Today it's Wiggins, tomorrow it'll be Parker.
0: I'm much higher on Wiggins than Parker, and the reason why is that I feel that he has the potential to be an elite player on both ends, and I'm think i not saying he will be. I'm saying that there are very few guys, and interestingly enough, I'm not comparing him to LeBron, but LeBron is one of the few guys as a perimeter player. Iguodala was never the scorer, but who you could make a feasible argument as a draft prospect that if you told me five years from now he's one of the... Five best perimeter defenders in the league. I would say, okay, I can buy that. Yeah, and if I, you said I he was, I think that one will other, happen. <laughs> yeah, and if you said he's one of the ten best scorers in the league, whether you're counting efficiency, I would say it's probably not going to be by volume. Then I would say, okay, you know, I can buy that, and it doesn't have to necessarily be both. I think it could be one or the other. I think he's going to be the comparison that I would make is I wouldn't be surprised if he ends up being something similar to what Paul George was last year where he's a really remarkable defensive player who can do enough on offense, but he might not carry you. And maybe he never becomes Paul George this year, and that's fine. His
1: shot is a little shaky. His handle is loose, but we've already seen that improve with Paul George and the hope is it would improve with uh, Wiggins. And frankly, I think Wiggins is a superior athlete to Paul George, who is a great athlete. There is a difference between those two guys.
0: Absolutely. In terms of player development, Obviously, it's kind of a conceptual thing, but would you think of a market more similar to soccer where there are academies that are kind of outside of the academic structure to
1: develop talent? That would be – I wish. I wish we had the academy system. I I prefer that to the corrupt, crazy college basketball morass we throw these guys in. I know that Emert – actually came out today, the uh, head of the NCAA, and was saying that it's ridiculous to have this one and done and make people go to college if they don't want to be there. So hopefully the tide is turning on that, and maybe we'll uh, we'll see a better uh, alternative system.
0: And the other part to me, I think people, the the talent development part of it is there, but to me the other part of that is that I think it's morally – Better to allow somebody to not only make their career, but get their development and get some money when at a point when it's valued, you know, if LeBron James, let's say, or OJ Mayo, you know, whatever, or Lance Stevenson, a, a really talented player as a kid, if they could make a million dollars or whatever a year as a kid, you know, as a 17 year old kid to get better, they're probably not going to play in the NBA at that age then more power to them. And then if they tear their Achilles or whatever, when they're 18 and instead of getting zero dollars, they got a million. I think that's wonderful.
1: what did you think of that Pacers heat game that change your perception at all of those two teams and who would win the, the big showdown. Everybody expects months and 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 months from now.
0: And not really. I think that, the big question to me is that in a seven-game series, if if let's say each game comes down, let's say it's a four-point game with four minutes to go, can with LeBron James guarding the most dangerous Pacer, let's say that's let's say that's Paul George because right now it is, and up
1: until this point it, it seems capable of shutting him down.
0: Yeah, that. Can the Pacers get more—because people like Steve Kerr, and he says it of consecutive stops, but we know both these teams can get consecutive stops. The big question is, can the Pacers score regularly enough to get offense— to get enough offense to win those type of games. I think they can. I just don't think they're the favorites to do that. I agree. And, I, and I'm not going to put money against LeBron James. I'm never going to put money against the best player in a series in the NBA when the supporting cast are both good. Well,
1: we sort of saw that play out with the Nuggets and the Warriors, how, how that goes. Um, with I, I suspected that Indiana was a better team this year and should be favored in the series. And then I saw them play, and even though Indiana won – I felt completely, wait a second, that was stupid. The Heat are better, and they'll probably win a series if they face off against each other. Uh, They don't have that second option. And even if people – people are going to fixate today on how Hibbert had this monster-efficient game. But what they're going to ignore is that they were rather inefficient – trying to pursue that action. So while Hibbert's efficiency is great and he scored all these points near the basket, they had all these deflections and all these turnovers because they're trying to feed the ball to Hibbert with a stuck in the mud offense. And so I don't, I don't know if that will be enough offense over the course of the series. Not only that, but the heat completely cracked their defense in that first quarter in a way we will probably see again in the future where they had open threes galore uh, drawing Hibbert all the way out to guard Chris Bosh at a three-point line is an issue for Indiana. And while Indiana showed the ability to really clamp down in those final three quarters, um, I, I I just believe that the Heat missed a lot of open threes and that this game was largely determined by it. So who knows? We, we have a lot of time between now and then, but <laughs> now I'm swinging the ledger to Miami, even though they got the result they didn't want.
0: There's a narrative out there that the Pacers are exactly what the Heat don't want to face. And I think that yes. narrative makes sense. But the, there's a the compare, there's are. a there's yeah, <laughs> th- there's also I think a corresponding narrative that Miami is exactly what Indiana doesn't want to face. And that's because with the way they can use Bosch to to kind of mac to handle out with Hibbert that they can do five out and they can do a lot of really unconventional stuff. And the other flaw to me with, with the Pacers, and it's something that I don't know if they're going to have the ability to fix, is that they're good enough defensively now that they don't need a strong defensive point guard like George Hill, and they need a guy who can get the ball into the post and who can create opportunities for other guys. Yeah. And and that that flaw makes them so easy to defend if you have a well-coached and athletically su- superior or equal team. And... Miami is unquestionably well coached. I, I would say the last time that I would I question that was when they were. I thought they made some weird decisions in the Dirk in the Dirk finals, the one with LeBron. I thought there was some tactic stuff, but the way that he the way that has used their talent is remarkable, and they can just exploit how hard it is for them to get the ball into Hibbert, and they can't really be better at it this late in this this late in the game.
1: Yeah, I, I I agree with that, and we always focus on what the Heat's weakness is against indiana because it's all about who will topple the heat this year but we don't focus on how indiana i know they've improved turnover wise this season from last year but they are turnover prone when you put the clamps on them the way that the heat did and so that's a weakness that's a weakness because then you get the turnovers and then with the transition points that defense can't stop that because it's not like you're gonna have roy hibbert run all the way down the court which brings to my next point which is should the pacers beat the heat I would pick the Thunder as the team among teams that would beat the Pacers in a series over any other team, because that defense is fantastic. But you need Hibbert in the paint for that defense to be fantastic, and Russ Russ was just right racing, racing down the floor, and you know Hibbert twenty feet behind him, beating the defense back. Same with Durant. That transition game makes it so that Indiana defense can't shine. So i picked pick the Thunder as the best team among all of them, and I would pick the Thunder in a series were they to play the Pacers months and months and months and months from now.
0: Do you think that Scotty Brooks, seeming like he's a little bit overmatched against the highest-end coaches, would be a big enough factor to maybe change that
1: at all? Not for me in that series, but maybe in some other series, just because – the Pacers play big, so Scott Brooks and his maddening intensity to play big wouldn't be that big a deal. It wouldn't be like the time uh, Brooks was having Kendrick Perkins guard Chris Bosh. Something like that wouldn't happen. So it would be mitigated as a factor.
0: Where do you see the Clippers fitting in in the whole Western Conference power paradigm right now?
1: That's a fantastic question. Um, not as good as I thought. I, I, that, that, that's the first thing that comes to mind. Uh, very good team. Blake has has had flashes this season. He's he's been excellent, but defensively it's an issue. Perimeter they have no perimeter defensive talent. And that's gonna come back to bite them against one of these better teams. I was high on them going in, but I should have accounted for that. I, I, I did not. And now that I've <laughs> now that I've noticed it, I, I think that it's a fatal flaw.
0: I picked them actually as ending up having the best record in the West, which is unlikely but po- unlikely but possible. I think that they're a better regular season team than postseason team because I think their flaws can be more easily exploited. They're kind of, in a way, like I would say something like Denver in the sense that they're such a big, crazy change of pace for teams that they catch them off guard and and everything like that. But when you get down to it, in a seven-game series, I think you can not only can you can you handle them more easily, but I also think you can get under their skin, and I think that that matters when you're thinking about what the way that Memphis beat them and the way that San Antonio beat them. That you can you can do that against the Clippers, and I don't think as much as I think Vinny Del Negro was a big limiting factor for them. Things like that haven't changed either.
1: Yes, I I would agree there. The team that's not getting enough buzz, speaking of poor perimeter defensive talent, but still they're not getting enough buzz, the Houston Rockets. People just flat don't like the Rockets. They don't like Dwight Howard. The style, it doesn't resonate because they just chuck shots from all over without running a semblance of a classical offense. But based on the numbers, they're one of those teams that looks like it's going to be a top 10, top 10, top 10 offense, top 10 defense, and people are sleeping on them. I mean, Dwight Howard's been looking good. Dwight Howard, James Harden, that's, that, that's a formidable combo right there. And then when you factor in their unique style of going all three-pointers, no mid-range, I, I like that team quite a bit.
0: If they can figure out their rotations, they're going to be – I think you could argue that other than Miami, they'll be the toughest out. That doesn't necessarily mean that they'll, they'll make it the farthest, but they're going to be a team that is going to be absolutely brutal to beat four games out of seven.
1: Yeah. Totally, they'll look awful in some of those games when the threes don't fall. But Terrence Jones, of all people, has just given them something that wasn't anticipated—a a true stretch for you. Hope that he can keep it together emotionally because he's he's been fantastic.
0: He has, and they and they, as people have talked about with the room, the uh, chic for Ryan Anderson trade forever is that they still have pieces that they can do, and they can go in a lot of different directions with things like that, and. I don't necessarily know exactly what they want to do, but if they want to do something, they have pieces that other people like. And when you do that, then you can make those trades. It's a lot easier than a situation like, let's say, the Warriors, where they want to get better and if they don't want to give up anybody in their top five, we'll exclude David Lee for, this, for the moment, they're, they have almost no assets.
1: I think the asset is Harrison Barnes right now uh, because he's ancillary to their success. Uh, if Evigadala comes back and teams are still intrigued by him but apart from that yeah they don't really have the assets
0: and the warriors are in a really hard situation in terms of that because assuming that you think they're locked in at the 1 the 2 the 3 and the 5 then you're bas you're limiting the pool of players i, mean, I don't think that they're going to trade Harrison Barnes for the best player available regardless of position you know it's not like they're going to be sitting there and well, they, somebody's going to offer in a good point guard.
1: there's a lot of belief in oh, Barnes yeah. internally uh, maybe I that belief will be rewarded, but they they certainly have it, so I don't think they'll they'll sell on what could be high on on, on Harrison Barnes. Thanks again for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me, man. You do a great job. Thanks. Peace.
0: Thanks again to Ethan Sherwood Strauss for coming on. It's always great to have him. Next up we have Michael Pock. Michael is a tax accountant and business manager, at FreeMark Financial LLP in Los Angeles. And I've known him for a while because we went to law school at UC Hastings together a few years ago. He used his background as a tax professional to analyze the Dwight Howard decision to go from LA to Houston from the financial side of it. And he was inspired by the kind of the perception that he left a lot of money on the table and really wanted to go into the differences financially between those two. He wrote a great piece. It's called The Complex Business of Taxing and Advising Athletes. It's on that perspective. It's on Real GM. It's in the archives now because it was about a week old. It's an excellent piece. Highly recommend you reading it. We go through that and then some of the larger and smaller implications of taxes on the decisions that athletes make. The conversation runs about 25 minutes. Hope you enjoy it. So thank you so much to Michael for coming on.
2: Oh, well, thank you, Danny. It's uh, it's my pleasure. It's been a long time coming. I think. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so you and I have you and I have known each other for a while, but I think it'd be good to give the listeners a little bit of your background, specifically in terms of tax.
2: Okay. Well, um, it, it started all the way back, uh, starting in college. I went to UCLA. I studied uh, economics, but with a minor in accounting, and that's when I really discovered my uh, my academic passion for you know the tax uh, the tax realm. After graduating, my first uh, position was with an accounting firm that was formerly uh, uh, part of Martha Anderson, which I think maybe for some of our older readers, they might recall, I was in the uh, private client services department there where we specialized in tax for high net worth individuals. I was there for a few years and then I transitioned to a business management firm where the clients were more based in, you know, entertainment and sports. You know, we provide the same types of services, like in terms of like accounting and tax preparation. And then, for whatever reason, I decided I was going to go back to law school. And, uh, and that's where we met and you know became good friends. Tax has always been, uh, in terms of like professionally, academically, uh, an interest of mine. And you know, now I work for a uh, business management firm similar to uh, the company that I worked at right before I went to law school. You know, we, we, um, we specialize in business management services, which entails you know, accounting services, bookkeeping, financial financial management, tax planning, sort of the whole gamut of, uh, we call it business management, but it's really like they're their financial advisors in all aspects, except for the investing side. So that's that's really where my background is.
0: And so that fits in really well, especially with, with entertainment and everything in terms of the sports world, because in entertainment, as in sports, the performers or entertainers, however you want to do it, they, per, they perform in different states around the country, and that really affects the, for them for tax purposes. Oh yeah, I mean definitely. I think
2: uh, in terms of product, the, the product that athletes put out compared to say, uh, you know, musicians, there are so many similarities because I think what we're seeing now, is, especially with in the music industry, the bulk of their their earnings is not coming from it's not coming from record sales because of the downloads and the internet. It's coming from touring, from from concerts, and that's quite similar to athletes. How they've always made their their income from you know their salaries from their employers, but. They're constantly on the road. You know, they spend half their half their season on the road and the other half at home. And so, to me, there's a lot of parallels. So uh, I think it's it's really coming to light that you know athletes before in the past, I would say like, oh yeah, they, they were they they played whatever sport it was because you know for the love of the game. But now it's it's a business, it's a big business. And so there's a lot of important decisions that come along with it.
0: And, and the other thing that makes those two fields similar is that they're larger amounts of money because when you're thinking about, you know, taxes and the share of your income, when you're making a lot more money, the pure dollars of it gets, gets really high.
2: Exactly. I, I mean, it, it's pretty much like public information now, how much an athlete makes. Everyone knows, like, what their salary is. You know, thanks to uh, publications like Forbes, everyone knows also, like, how much money they're making in endorsements? endorsement, it's more or less, for better or worse, athletes are, in, they exist in the public realm. So I don't want to say it's all fair game, but there's really no hiding. Like, this is how much they make a year. And if you're the IRS, this is just, I mean, and this is something we encounter in in as, as a tax accountant. If you were the IRS, so you wanted to, you know, as part of your annual, like, audit, Sort of employee, if you want so to so to say to speak, are you going to go after someone who makes fifty thousand dollars a year and potentially audit their their return to see if there's any sort of a red flag, or are you going to go after someone who makes twenty million dollars a year? I think it's just sort of for better or worse. I hate to say, it, but it's just like the sound business practice. You're going to go after the uh, the tax return the taxpayer who has potentially a higher um, benefit of cheating the system. I'm not saying athletes do that, but it's a, sort of a hard to fast rule, like you're gonna go after someone who, who makes more money because the chances are they're, they have bigger incentive to cheat the system. And
0: also, we know since athletes are so high profile kind of in, in pop culture and everything else, the fact that they do their performing, especially if we're talking about people within the RS, the, the fact that their returns is complicated is something that is presumably incredibly well-known in the field. So there are a lot of pitfalls for, for athletes.
2: Yeah, I mean, I can't fathom an athlete not going to a tax professional to help, you know, prepare their tax return. I can't imagine an athlete deciding, oh, I'm going to prepare my return myself. But to me, it's unfathomable. An athlete has an agent. They have probably some have posses, I'm sure. Some of them have publicists, But almost 99%, they're going to have a tax professional preparing their return because you're wading into deep water if you don't.
0: So earlier this week, you wrote a, a, a really strong piece for Real GM explaining the, the fundamentals of how these tax discrepancies work, specifically in the context of Dwight Howard, because his decision had a lot of interesting tax implications, whether or not they directly impacted how and why he made his decision.
2: Mm-hmm. I can't think of another athlete who started the intense coverage that, that followed his decision process during his free agency. Two, I think most people knew that he was either going to, at least in my mind, he was either going to stay with Los Angeles or he's going to go to either one of two teams. If I have call correctly, it was either going to be Houston or Dallas, which are you know both located in Texas. To me, that was sort of a really interesting situation because most people were thinking about his decision from a basketball perspective, but sort of curious about what was in his head to talk basketball, if there was ever like any sort of financial factors that were in his mind when he made his decision.
0: People can read the piece to get really into the nitty gritty, but one of the core ideas of the piece is that since Texas has no state income tax, his income (laughs) derived in the state does not, is not subject to that, though it is subject to federal income tax, while California has one of the, if not the highest in the entire nation, state income (laughs) taxes. Uh,
2: You're right. California uh, recently, with some recently enacted legislation, has the highest state-income tax rate, at least for high-income earners. Specifically, uh, a taxpayer who makes more than $400,000 a year. They are subject to a 13.3% tax rate on any income above $400,000. Texas has a 0% income tax rate. Texas is one of seven states in in the United States that have zero income tax when you start dealing with some of these really really astronomical figures when you talk about tens of millions of dollars that state tax liability can become at least i think it should be a really meaningful factor in terms of making a decision Uh, like i know like we said basketball decisions aside but financially i mean we're talking about millions of dollars and I don't know anyone who wouldn't say, Oh, that's not that's not a consideration when you make a decision about your, your livelihood.
0: And when you and when you're talking millions of dollars for your, so for twenty thirteen, assuming you know, we're counting it the tax year as the full year just for, for bookkeeping purposes is what you did in the article. The the difference with the same salary because you'd have the same base salary either place, the difference was about one point two million dollars. So that's not that's not chump change in any way, shape or form.
2: No, it's not all. And and the one thing I didn't include in my analysis was, you know, I was not factoring in federal tax, and because I didn't want to complicate the analysis to a point where people would be like, oh, this is like just a bunch of numbers in front of me and uh, it means nothing. But like I, I was thinking actually earlier in to the top of my head, if someone made twenty million dollars in California, and let's say they made in Texas, the two let's compare the two hypotheticals, California after federal and pay taxes, they, were, they would probably take home about, I want to say about $12 million versus in Texas, they would take home about $14 million. So when you think about it, that $2 million is even a bigger proportion. It's not $2 million out of $20 million. It's $2 million out of 12 to 14, which now you're getting into a higher percentage of like, I mean, that's real money. Of course, we would all have to have, like to be able to say, "Oh man, we're making twelve million dollars a year." But if you were, would you? I think most people would be like, "Well, would you like an extra two million on top of that?" That's money that more or less you earned. Shouldn't you be entitled to, to keep that? And just the fact that you made it in Texas as a Texas resident versus I earning in California. I mean, I think athletes are sort of in this. And this goes back to uh, there, there was a comment on the article was there are certain benefits of being, you know, residing in California and earning, you know, in terms of your livelihood. California offers certain benefits that Texas doesn't. But in the end, like, can you really justify being a California resident, it was worth $2 million more than being a Texas resident? I, I think that's really a sort of abstract concept.
0: Well, and and not only that, but there's also the the factor that in basketball, you have functionally, you generally have your summers off. So there are a lot of players who have alternative residences in okay. other places. So if you're, if you're just making a quality of living argument, you're mostly focusing on the quality of living during the winter months when you're traveling half the time. Yeah, and those differences those differences are, are are there. And then there's also the factor which you which you alluded to in the piece, but would be too cal- too complicated to calculate by what I can tell, which is that there are other costs related to the, the general cost of living difference between living in a place like Houston and
2: living in a place like LA. Yeah, I'm sure Dwight has a very nice place in Texas, and he's quite happy there. I'm sure you've been if he was a late, if he was still a Lakers, he would have had a very nice comfortable lifestyle here too. But I can hardly fault him for his decision. You know, being a Lakers fan, obviously I felt a little bit jilted when he decided to leave. But at the same time, he clearly did not want to stay. And so he decided to leave. And, and so as a fan, I was sort of uh, disenchanted with, uh, you know, Dwight. But from a financial perspective, I would be like, you know what? He probably made, that was a good move for himself.
0: The other factor in terms of the finances, and you talked about it in the piece, that that's a little comp, a little complicated, is endorsements because theoretically his endorsements could be different from place to place. How how are how are endorsements factored in for tax purposes? Because they if they're recorded or how how does all of that work in practice? Oh, I
2: mean uh, endorsements. That's really where. It's a little, I do not say murky, but it gets, that, that's where there's a little, little bit of, I call it inexact science. You can get a little bit creative because the idea of, like, you know, I, and I was touching on this about Nexus and about, so, your know, sort of this concept of where you earn your income. It's pretty logical that if, you know, when Dwight plays the basketball game in Texas, that income that he earned, the that, that salary attributed to that game here in Texas, Versus, like, if he played a road game in California, you could say that the the salary that he received for playing that road game was in California because that's where he played the basketball game. That's sort of the, the location of his business activity. With endorsements, it's a little bit more conceptual because – so let's say he decides to film a shoe commercial for Adidas, and he decides to film the commercial, and this is not his decision, and, and – and let's, let's pick a different state. Let's go with New York. And that commercial is filmed and then it's broadcasted on television across all fifty states. Well, where do you think the income that he's going to receive from Adidas for and through his endorsement contract, where should that income be attributed? The idea is he's brought you know, he's endorsing Adidas as a spokesperson to all fifty states, but to be practical, you can't say that he earned his income in all fifty states. So to make things a little bit simpler, we're gonna say, well, he filmed that commercial in New York. So we're going to say that the sort of point of origin, the business nexus, where he earned his endorsement income from Adidas. So we're going to attribute that income to New York. Now, it, that, that's sort of, whether you agree with that or not, that's the practice. But you can imagine uh, commercials can be filmed anywhere. I mean, if you want to, say, film a commercial in uh, North Dakota in a, in a studio, you could do that. I don't know why you would, but... You would have income now sourcing off the coast. So that's where things get a little bit more fuzzy and abstract.
0: And, and so, as a factor in that, he would presumably have more endorsement potential in California, but uh, theoretically, a much larger proportion of that would be charged at the higher California rates. Right. I mean,
2: uh, if Dwight was still a linger, I think it's a reasonable assumption that he would probably be receiving endorsement offers from. A wide range of, of companies, and most of them, most of them would probably want to film or conduct any sort of publicity engagements, or film whatever commercials or any activities related to his capacity as a spokesperson for that company within California. Reasonable assumption, because given his role as an entertainer, I mean, California is still sort of at the center for for entertainment. I know that there are other topics in the United States where they're merging in terms of entertainment. I know, like, you know, Austin is a good one, for example. But I think Southern California is still, that's where everyone sort of uh, descends upon. So that, that was an assumption that I made in my analysis. But, again, these are all assumptions. I mean, that's where you can get really creative because... Dwight is to me he's and I guess this is true. You, I think you probably agree in terms of big men in the NBA and their marketability. After Shaq, I think it's Dwight and who else, right?
0: Yeah, and a lot of it depends on personality, and it's it's. I think that it's a, hard to argue in certain circumstances that it's kind of Dwight is what he is, and so for certain things he'll be he'll be fine for endorsements, but he's not going to be the next. Tiger Woods before, you know, everything that happened with Tiger Woods, or LeBron James is becoming a more a more omnipresent advertising person. So it's there's the big man factor in it, and then there's the factor that he's not the lightning rod that everybody wants. Everybody wants selling products, so it's not like he would be generating, he's leaving a bunch of money on the
2: table either way. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with that. I think it's a little unfortunate. I mean, there was a point when, I, you and I remember when he was with the magic, and he was participating in the slam dunk contest, and, and he was like a nightly highlight reel in terms of the, just his power dunks. And, and, and just he, to me, I thought he was a really uh, sort of magnetic figure, and I thought he could be like the next superstar big man. But, you know, as long as I can live with the decisions he's made, then who am I to judge, right? I think it's safe to say he's taking a bit of a hit in the public eye in the past couple of years.
0: Yeah, it's, it's definitely fair to say that, and I think a portion of that would have happened just by engineering his way to L.A. in the first place. Engineering his way out of L.A. after that is, is something, but I think the, the, the larger portion of the hit happened first, and it, oh, it would have been interesting to see to see how that would have been impacted by him staying, theoretically. It's
2: funny how you say engineering. I mean, it wasn't his decision, right? It was, it was, it was uh, who was the GM of the, uh, I think, at the uh, uh, Hennigan. Yeah, I mean... Who's to say Dwight had the power in that relationship in that dynamic? I'm being okay. uh, <laughs>
0: In terms of the, the thought process and generating the information on the piece, did you ha- do you feel like you really had a conclusion? What, what you walked away from it, learning or explaining to people? I
2: did. I, I you know I wanted to sort of address precon, preconceived notions. Everyone was making a big deal that oh you know Los Angeles was offering this next contract that Houston couldn't match. And just the idea that, you know, one, you don't leave Los Angeles. when You have a chance to play for the Lakers, and you, you have the opportunity to be the next great, you know, sort of legendary center, and uh, how could he walk away from that? But that was a basketball decision that he made, and that, that was the decision. From a financial perspective, the first thing I thought when he went to Texas, well, wow, he's going to save a lot of money in, in income taxes. I, that's just how I think him. And I know a lot of people were like, well, and this is uh, a lot of people were think, well, he walked away from a lot of money, but I want to sort of, uh, I don't want to say refute that that misconceived perception, but I think, well, when you look at an annual basis, like when I covered his uh, 2013 financial situation, I think it's safe to say that he didn't walk away from any money by, by leaving Los Angeles and going to Houston. But... Um, this is something that uh, I know some of your readers were raising. I think the valid point is how Los Angeles was more or less offering, and correct me if I'm mistaken, it was a guaranteed fifth year. It's not, it wasn't necessarily guaranteed, but it was guaranteed from the perspective that he had a player option. Right? Is that correct?
0: Correct. Yeah. I, I think that the, play, the fifth year is, is generally overrated in the sense that as long as he's playing well enough, The contract that he will be offered after that theoretical fifth year is going to be the same or largely the same. This is the issue with LeBron that, you know, oh, it's great that he has security, but unless he did something terrible to his body, he was going to get a max contract anyway. So in some ways, you can even make the counter argument, which I would make personally, that Dwight, by going to Houston, he has an opt-out after the third year, It's more likely that he will be capable of generating another max offer while still a little younger than by going four or five years. And so it's possible that he might actually not have been leaving any money on the table, though he certainly left security on the table.
2: Oh, interesting. I didn't didn't know that he had an opt-out after the third year.
0: The general concept now is that they try to give players who are of a high enough caliber an opt-out as a way of giving them some leverage because they can't offer them more money because of individual maximum salaries.
2: Oh, well, that makes sense. You know, and, and this is something I was thinking about when someone mentioned the whole, you know, guaranteed fifth year. Now I was thinking, well, when does the current um, collective bargaining agreement expire? And then I noticed it expires in 2017.
0: That kind of coincides potentially, that might coincide <laughs> with his free agency. And actually opting out. Opting out after a third year, I believe, would put him at the end of 2016 so he could lock in under the current CBA. And considering how the players got
2: whooped the last time, that might actually be a really good thing for him. Yeah. I mean, everyone likes security, but at the same time, you're, 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 you're Dwight Howard. You're more or less considered the the best you know, big man in professional basketball. You're going to be able to, to um, command a, a premium. So I have... You know, I'm not considered at all concerned at all about like future earnings uh, potential as a basketball player.
0: People see things in a very linear way of like, oh, he could be getting this money now, and he's not going to get it. But in in all likelihood, the difference between what he will end up getting and what he's turning down right now should be pretty minimal. And it's it's certainly possible, you know, if something terrible happens, that twenty or so million might not be there. You know, if you. Look at a guy like Amari Stoudemire having extra years on his contract is definitely giving him money he would not have gotten, but that's not Dwight. You there's an optimism that you always hope for that I'll be I'll be good enough to make that money at the end of this, and he's going to be young enough where that should still be true. Yeah,
2: and hey, cheap shot on the Knicks. I mean, way to way to hit someone while they're down, right?
0: That's the kind of the the best argument that you can make for somebody about the benefit of having guaranteed money is that if Amari, you know, if his contract expired at the end of this year as opposed to the end of next year, he wouldn't be paid anything close to what he's getting. So more power to him, happy that he got it, you know, that's, that and it's amazing it's uninsured, but that's the worst-case scenario from a functional perspective.
2: Right, right. He's only in the first year of his contract. I, I mean, I haven't really watched a lot of the Rockets, but I, I imagine Dwight, I mean, he struggled a bit last year with the Lakers, but, I mean, we can attribute that to, you know, his, his back injury and he's rehabbing more or less like the rapid speed it seemed like I kind of want to say that I think I expect to just sort of rediscover his dominant persona on the court, but you no know, like you said, I mean uh, who knows who knows what level of play he's going to be at on the court so that's, that's all speculation.
0: Absolutely. Is there anything else that you'd like to, that you'd like to share to everybody else or have we pretty much hit everything?
2: No, I mean I, I think that's I think we really sort of covered the, the more or less the really sort of relevant topics that I think from at least from a tax perspective that athletes have to deal with. The idea that athletes in fulfilment of their obligations as an employee of their of the company, that they're going to be subject to all the regulations and, and filing requirements and, and the, the scrutiny of all these tax agencies. I mean, that's pretty scary because we've we've heard a lot of stories recently. What comes to mind right now is I mean this is sort of outside the scope is because this is more of an international tax issue. You know Manny Pacquiao being all his bank accounts being subject to being being seized by the Philippine government because they're they're claiming he did not uh, pay in his, his fair share of taxes. That's that's the reality that athletes face today. If you don't pay what Uncle Sam or, you know, the state equivalent of Uncle Sam says that you owe them. And they can come after you. They can seize your assets. They can, uh, you know, know, they can, um, can, you know, come down on your bank accounts. And and that's, that's the reality of the situation. No one wants that. I mean, they're going out and putting themselves on the line and they've earned what they've, you know, made. And the idea that a negligent tax repair can subject these athletes to... You know, a lot of um, headaches. Uh, that's that's kind of scary stuff. That's what I think. Hopefully, I think most athletes, whether they're being advised by the team that they play for or their or their advisors, they need to make sure that they're covering all their bases and doing you know and, and that to me the due diligence because that but you don't want to, you don't want to have to deal with the, the federal government or the state government. They more or less you know have the final say in a lot of things.
0: Well, thank you so much for taking the time, first off, to write the piece, and second of all, to further illuminate it here.
2: Oh, well, I mean, it was my pleasure. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you so much to Michael Pock for coming on. You can read his piece called The Complex Business of Taxing and Advising Athletes on realgm.com. It's in the archives now because it's about a week old as of this recording. I'd also like to thank Ethan Sherwood-Strauss for coming on. You can read him on ESPN or you can follow him on Twitter at Sherwood Strauss appreciate both of them and appreciate you for listening if you have any insights into the show or any ideas for guests or anything like that always welcome you can hit me up on twitter at danieleroux d-a-n-n-y l-e-r-o-u-x or you can email me at Larue at realgm.com you can also reach out to anybody that you like us as- that you'd be like as a potential guest, always appreciate it. It helps get momentum. Haven't had much problem getting people to say yes, but it's always nice and always gets it in their minds. So appreciate that. It's a collaborative process. Any insight is greatly appreciated. So thank you for taking the time to listen. Thank you for taking the time to respond and hope to have you back again soon. Thanks. Take care and make it a great day.